Well, Merry Christmas to everyone. And uh, lovely for you all to be here today, particularly if you're a visitor, um, whether you're visiting family or whether you're just on holidays. And uh, today you've, you've just uh, stumbled onto the Mafra Community Church. Uh, many blessings to you as um, uh, we join together celebrating this incredible day. So why don't we uh, begin with a word of prayer and then we'll get into God's word. Dear Father, we, we thank you for this uh, most glorious time when we can remember the birth of your Son into this world. The one who was truly God became truly flesh as well. Uh, we thank you that in the Lord Jesus Christ we see the glory of God. And uh, Father, we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds uh, to see that glory, to see that he is Lord and that he has come to save his people from their sin and that as we repent of our sin, as we we lay our pride and our ways down before you and to trust humbly uh, in him and in him alone, uh, we might experience the joy of salvation and the joy of eternal life. Father, we pray as we come before your word now uh, that you would, through the power of your spirit, enlighten our hearts and our minds that we might understand Uh, the truth and the wonder of Christmas. In your precious son's name we pray. Amen. Well, over this uh, last month, uh, our focus has been on the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, that God the Son also became truly man. And just in summary, we've we've seen the promise of, of the incarnation as we've studied the prophetic words of Isaiah chapter 7. Uh, We've seen the necessity of the incarnation as we studied those profound words of Hebrews chapter 2. We've seen the glory of the incarnation as we studied those preeminent words of John chapter 1 which just lifts us into the heavenly realms, lifts us into Christ's pre-existence. And this morning we're going to see the joy of the incarnation as we study these phenomenal words of Luke chapter 2 and see that the reality of the incarnation is truth of immense joy. So if you haven't already, please turn with me to uh, Luke chapter 2. Now our focus today is going to be on the encounter that the shepherds had uh, with the angels, uh, but just to get Our bearings, just to set the scene, Uh, we're going to read from verse 1 to verse 21. Luke chapter 2, and from verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. 
And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Saviour, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it has been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So as I mentioned, our focus today is going to be on the angelic visitation to the shepherds, which picks up from verse 8. And as we work through this passage, we're going to see three main actions, which are going to make our three main points for today, and the first of which we will see is a joyous speech. This opens with a joyous speech. After the birth of Mary's child, God ensures that there are certain people to come and witness this most miraculous arrival in this most humble of circumstances. And God uh, decides in his wisdom uh, that those who will first get to witness are humble shepherds. And so God sends his angels to proclaim a joyous speech. But we get insight into the nature of angels when this speech firstly begins with fear. Verses 8 and 9, let me read those again. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Now it certainly takes away the image we sometimes have of cutesy little angels with fairy wings. Uh, These men, these shepherds, were no pushovers. Uh, King David, uh, he was born uh, in the region of Bethlehem and he, he grew up working as a shepherd in that area. Uh, in 1 Samuel 17, the young man David recalls how he struck down both lions and bears as he worked as a shepherd in Bethlehem. And so these shepherds are not weak-minded, they're not frail in strength, and yet what they witness fills them with great fear. And not only did an angel of the Lord appear before them, but the glory of the Lord shone all around them. As uh, I explained last week, the glory of the Lord refers to both uh, the Lord's excellence, his excellent reputation, 
and also to the visible manifestation of his excellence, the visible light uh, that he creates to bear witness to himself. Remember that God is a spirit and we cannot see him unless he reveals himself in some way. And this is what the shepherds see. And like the, the people of Israel who saw the glory of the Lord descend uh, upon Mount Sinai, the shepherds were also terrified at the sight. But as the angel speaks, what initially begins with fear, then secondly, it brings about felicity. It brings about joy. Verse 10. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. The angel reassures them that he has come to share with them something wonderful. This news of the incarnation is something that is both good and will bring about a sense of exceeding joy. That it is good news ties in with the scope of Luke's gospel account. To bring good news, to announce or herald or uh, preach good news is what Jesus did throughout his earthly ministry. That is to proclaim the gospel itself. Now in In broad terms, it was the gospel of the kingdom, of God's gracious and sovereign rule. But in more specific, in in narrower terms, it is the gospel of Jesus' life, death and resurrection, which would usher in God's kingdom. And so to enter the Father's kingdom, one must submit to the Son. The good news is that people did not have to work to enter the kingdom, to come under God's gracious rule, but they could enter the kingdom by faith in the work of the Son, by Christ alone. And this good news will lead to joy. All who repent of their sins and believe in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus will enter the kingdom of God and experience the joy that this brings. The Apostle Paul emphasises the joy of entering the kingdom of God. Uh, In Romans 14 verse 17, he describes the nature of the kingdom as being of righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. In Galatians 5, 19-21, he he contrasts the fruit produced by the kingdom of this world with the fruit produced by the kingdom of God. One of the nine fruits produced in the believer by the Holy Spirit is what? Joy. So, no wonder the angel's declaration is that the good news of the incarnation will lead to such joy. Now, we need to be clear at this point. The angel is not saying that all people will experience the joy that the good news brings. This angel is not up there advocating universalism, that all people will be saved. Nor is the angel saying that the message is only for a certain group of people. Now what he says is this. He brings good news. And this good news will lead to great joy for anyone who believes it. But the message itself is given to all people. 
which would initially be all the Jews, but would extend to all the Gentiles as well. The angel is not saying that all people will experience the joy, but that the good news is to go out to all people and whoever believes in it will experience the joy it brings. Listen to these words of the Apostle Peter in his uh, first letter. In chapter 1, verses 8 to 9, he declares this to the believers. He says, Though you have not seen him, referring to Jesus, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. It is those who love Jesus who are filled with joy. Now, when we think of the gospel in specific terms, that is, the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and the the blessings that are attained through repentance of sin and faith in him, we see throughout scripture that the gospel is to be proclaimed to all people without exception. In Luke chapter 24 Verses 46 to 47, Jesus declared this to his disciples. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. The incarnation is good news for this world and it is to be proclaimed to this world, to everyone. No person is off limits in that sense, no matter age, gender or race. It is good news for this world. And we recognise this truth in the words of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. (coughs) This message of joy is for all people such that all who respond in repentance and faith will truly know and experience that joy for themselves. This is the declaration of the angel. So from fear to felicity, the angel now gets into specifics by showing thirdly that the good news bears Old Testament fulfilment. Verse 11 For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Saviour who is Christ the Lord. The long-awaited Saviour has arrived. In the city of David, in the birthplace of the greatest Israelite king, the one whose arrival was prophesied, had now come. Luke doesn't make specific reference, but no one was unaware of what the prophet Micah had declared approximately 700 years earlier. And we read in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. That time had now been fulfilled. Now there are Three titles here which spell out the identity and the mission of this 
uh, this person, this baby, whom we, we know is the Lord Jesus. And, and all of these titles are rooted in Old Testament prophecy. So firstly, we see that he is the saviour. In Matthew 1, 21, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said to him, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now the name Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua, and it means Yahweh saves, the Lord saves. And we can see right there the seeds sown in the past, as it was through Joshua that God led the people of Israel into the promised land. That Jesus is the saviour also shows explicitly that people need saving. We don't just need a leg up, we need salvation. It is from the consequences of sin from which people need to be saved. Now, sin is disobedience to God. And as part of the human race, we are all born into sin because of our first parents, Adam and Eve. And when given the chance, we choose to sin. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. All throughout the Old Testament, God promises to save his people from their sins. For instance, we read in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 to 27. God says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now that's the promise of salvation. But the only way that sin can be atoned for, that sin can be dealt with, is for innocent blood to be shed. Uh, In Leviticus 17 verse 11, that makes that perfectly clear. And the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 9 reiterates what was said in Leviticus, that only by the shedding of blood can there be forgiveness of sin. And so when we see that Jesus would save his people from their sins, it, it alludes to his future death on the cross, where he would become a substitute, dying in the place of his people. A sacrifice that was proved right because of his subsequent historic bodily resurrection on the third day. This uh, is seen in Isaiah's prophecy, those well-known words of chapter 53 verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In John 4, a group of Samaritans, after spending time with Jesus, they declare this. They say, we know that this is indeed the saviour of the world. The people that Jesus has come to save, his people, are not of one ethnicity, not just the Jews, but peoples of all nations. And so Jesus is the saviour. 
but he is also the Christ. Christ is the Greek form of the Hebrew Messiah, and it means anointed one. It was a title used especially of the kings of Israel, uh, but it came to refer to the true king of David's line, who would one day arrive to rule his people with complete justice and righteousness, which is God's covenant to David that we read about in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And to the shepherd's amazement, that moment had arrived. But this wasn't all. For this saviour, this Christ, is also the Lord. That he is the Lord speaks of his sovereignty and his divinity. Again, 700 years earlier, Micah's uh, acquaintance, uh, contemporary, was the prophet Isaiah. And he declared in chapter 7, verse 14, that there would be one who would be born, who would be God with us. And then he said in chapter 9, verse 6, that this one would be called Mighty God. You can see clearly why the angel's news is good and why it will lead to joy. It is the news that the Saviour has arrived and he is the Christ and he is the Lord God. The word who is God and is with God. This word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the angel's joyous speech bears Old Testament fulfilment. But it's also based on fact. Verse 12. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. See, proof uh, that the angel of all that the angel has said is to be found not very far away from where these shepherds were tending their sheep. They can go and see it for themselves. The magnitude of the Saviour's identity and mission is contrasted to the humility of his arrival. The the Saviour hasn't come, hasn't arrived with pomp and fanfare, and it's not the elite uh, who are invited to witness his coming. No, the Saviour arrives in a backwater town in poor conditions under questionable circumstances and those invited to see him first are average Joes. No one, no one at all would look at the birth of this little one as something significant, something world-changing, least of all something miraculous. But that is the wonder of God. And that is also the deception of our sinful minds. Through the incarnation, God calls us to rely on his power for salvation, not on our own abilities. In human judgment, the sign of the manger is a sign of failure, much like the cross would be a sign of failure later on. But God always calls us to see things from his perspective. The gospel proclamation calls each and every person to trust in God and him alone for salvation. For it is by grace alone that any sinner is saved. So this is the joyous speech of the angel. But with the declaration of such incredible good news, there's no help for it but to break out with singing in amazing chorus. 
And so from a joyous speech to now point two, a joyous song. Verse 13, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God. The angel, this one angel of the Lord, is joined by other angels who can't help but respond uh, to the wonder of God's gracious work with praise and adoration. Now, while it was amazing for the shepherds to see by one angel, now a whole host appears. And this word describes an army encampment, right? This is not merely a quartet of angels that's, that's rocked up to sing in harmony with this, this lead singer. No, uh, this is something utterly unfathomable. It is a surrounding, it is an encampment. The multitude of the heavenly host has arrived to sing praise to God. And they firstly praise the glory of God. Verse 14, they were saying, glory to God in the highest. These angels exhibit for the shepherds and exhibit for us what is the true response to God. God's people need to pay attention to the way the angels respond here. Because in Isaiah 43 verse 7, God declares of those called by his name as having been created for my glory. And of course, when we recognize what God has done, then there really is nothing else to do but to experience the joy of giving him the glory and honor. We've already seen the work of God in the incarnation, that a saviour has been born, who will save his people from their sins, who is Christ the Lord, and is therefore the work of the triune God, the Father, Son, and the Spirit, who brings about salvation. Glory to God in the highest. But not only do the angels praise the glory of God, they praise the grace of God. They sing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The angels recognize God's completely gracious work to bestow peace. And just note for a second that the army of angels is bringing a message of peace. Now this peace is not some sort of emotional zen-like experience, nor is it talking about the beauty pageant answer of peace on earth. No, the peace spoken of here is an end to war, an end to enmity, but not enmity solely between human beings on a horizontal level, but rather on a vertical, between humanity and between God. The sinner is in rebellion against God. The sinner is God's enemy and God's righteous wrath rests upon that person for the wages of sin is death. And because sinners are dead in their sins, they cannot and will not respond to the good news in and of their own strength. Now this does not mean, of course, that sinners have no ability uh, to choose at all. Of course they do. But their choices are not morally neutral. Sinners can freely choose to do whatever they desire. 
but their desires have been corrupted by sin. And as such, will never choose to follow God and his ways because they have no desire whatsoever to do so. The question then is, if sinners are in rebellion against God, then how on earth is it possible for holy God to be pleased with them? And the answer is by his grace alone. And if it is only by grace that a sinner can become pleasing to God, and if not all sinners become pleasing to God, then the clear and logical and indeed biblical conclusion is that God extends his grace to those upon whom he chooses. Now, there is nothing in the Bible that says God must be merciful to everyone, that God must deal equally with all people. In fact, in Romans, Paul talks about God as being the one whom will show mercy to whom he will show mercy to. So there is nothing in the Bible that demands a certain response from God. And if that were the case, then God would either have to sentence everyone or save everyone. Moreover, if salvation is not solely God's work, but rather it depends upon a sinner's ability to respond to God by himself, then the glory of salvation must be shared, at least partially, between God and man. And so we can no longer cry glory to God alone, but glory to God in part, and glory to man in part. Doesn't that sound magnificent? But God is the only one worthy of any glory. The angels sing, glory to God in the highest. God himself has revealed to us in his word that in his grace and mercy, he has wonderfully chosen to bring regeneration into the hearts of his elect people bringing new birth that they might respond in repentance and faith and become one of his children, adopted into his family forever. Listen to these words of Jesus uh, from John chapter 10, verses 27 to 30, and he's using a shepherd and a sheep analogy here. He said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. To those who respond to the gospel, there is no longer war against God but welcome into his family. That is what we see in the song of the angels. On earth, peace among those with whom he is well pleased. Who are those with whom he is well pleased? They are the faithful. How do they become faithful? By God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The proclamation of the gospel is to go out into all the world and it is those who respond in faith to Jesus, trusting in him as their saviour, committing to live their lives under his lordship, 
It is these people who find themselves as the people Jesus has come to save. His people. Those on whom the Father's favour rests. It is these people who understand intimately that Jesus, in Isaiah's words, is the Prince of Peace. Salvation does not rely on our own feeble efforts and works, but on the incredible grace and sovereign work of the Lord. And finally, after the angels' joyous speech, which led to a choir of angels in joyous song, comes point three, a joyous sight. And this joyous sight begins firstly, or it is firstly, a a moment of privilege for the shepherds. Listen to these words from verse 15. When the angel went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And then verse 16, And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. The shepherds have the incredible privilege of seeing the baby first. Now months later after Jesus' birth, uh, perhaps even a year or two, He would be visited by the Magi, those wise men from the east. Men of a higher social standing than the shepherds, especially given uh, the expensive gifts they bring. The shepherds merely bring the sheep cologne with them. But the privilege given to the shepherds of witnessing the baby first shows two very important things. Firstly, it shows that the Saviour has come for all types of people, not merely the rich. Indeed, when Jesus begins his public ministry, it is recorded in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 to 19, that he read the following from the prophet Isaiah. Jesus said this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. So the, the, uh, the privilege that the shepherds have of seeing the baby first merely uh, highlights and emphasises for us that the Saviour has come for all types of people. But secondly, uh, it shows the validity of the events. If Luke were making this account up, surely he would have made the first witness to the birth of the Saviour someone whose testimony would have carried more weight than a bunch of shepherds. But that just adds weight to its truth. It's just the same with the accounts of the resurrection after Jesus' death. If the gospel writers uh, were trying to make something more believable, then surely they would have recorded uh, that the first they, sh- they wouldn't have recorded that the first witnesses to the open tomb were women. Because in the first century AD, the testimony of women did not account for much. In simple terms, the shepherd's witness is testimony to the fact that God's power is most visible and clear when he works through what the world deems weak and unimportant. And what happens after the shepherds see the baby? They become evangelists. Verses 17 and 18. 
And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. And then in verse 20, And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. They became evangelists. The, the response of the shepherds firstly mirrors the response of the angels. They, they speak the truth about what God has done to everyone they meet. And then it leads to singing about what God has done. Understanding the truth of God will always lead to worship of God. As someone has said, theology always leads to doxology. And it's the response that comes from those with whom God is pleased. It is the faithful response to the grace of God at work in a person's life. Not only do they possess the truth, they proclaim the truth that others might come to hear the good news and experience the joy of salvation for themselves. But while the joyous sight of God incarnate is a moment of privilege for the shepherds, at the same time, it is a moment of pondering for Mary. Verse 19. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart, the arrival of the shepherds to see her newborn baby must have been quite something. Now, she'd already had an encounter with an angel and, and so had her husband Joseph. Uh, but to hear the testimony of the shepherds that they'd not only seen one angel, but an entire army is amazing. Especially since that army of angels had directed the shepherds to come and see her little one who was now resting in the manger, in the animal feed trough. That's quite something. And the text says that she treasured up all these things, which meant she preserved them in her mind. She kept them safe. She kept those things close at hand. And as she did so, she pondered them. She considered them and, and contemplated and conferred upon them. And all this she did in her heart it seems that there is a weighing up in her own mind as to what all this means for her son. Yes, he is God's son, but he's also been given to her to care for her, care for as her own. Now, perhaps there is a connection here to Jesus' own thoughts in the Garden of Gethsemane many years later when he prayed to the Father, if it were possible, for the cup of wrath to pass from him. For Mary, perhaps there is a sense of wondering if there is any other way for the future of her son. Perhaps she can find a way to keep him safe. But just like Jesus finished his prayer with, not my will but yours be done, Mary's inclination is also to God's will. See, Mary was an extraordinarily faithful woman. And in the following verses, we see that faithfulness come about. Verse 21 says, And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So Mary commits herself and her son to God's plan. That means her son will be the saviour of the world. She will not hold on to her son for herself but will allow him to bring joy to the hearts of sinners 
to all those whom he has come to save, to all whom by God's grace will respond to him in repentance and faith. So what an incredible passage that we have for us this morning. This joyous speech, this joyous song and this joyous sight. As you celebrate Christmas Day tomorrow, may the greatest joy not be found in your family and friends or in the food that you eat or in the presents that you will give and receive, but may your greatest joy be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. May you call upon him, humbly submit to him, trust in him and receive him and know the joy of salvation. For he is the only way to the Father. He is the only way to eternal life. For he is the only one who is God with us. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for the amazing words in this passage that we've looked at today. We thank you uh, that you do work mightily through uh, through human weakness and the weaker it is, the, the more glorious uh, we see uh, your work. Father, we, we see the, the contrast between uh, the, the wonder of the identity of this little child and yet we see the, the, the humbling circumstances in which he was brought into. We also see that... Uh, we see that in the, the arrival of the shepherds that you chose to be the first witnesses and the first evangelists uh, to this account. Father, as we uh, go from here today, uh, may we be encouraged and challenged by these words. May we know that it is by your grace alone uh, that we will be found pleasing to you. But may uh, we not hesitate to proclaim the good news of this uh, great joy can be found uh, to whoever we meet, regardless of age and, and race and gender, regardless of location. May you embolden us uh, with, uh, with clarity and the grace and the ability to share this gospel, this good news to the world around. We pray this in your precious son's name. Amen.